All right, we're going to go ahead and get uh, started. Thank you so much for uh, coming out to visit me uh, for this 25-minute lecture on high flow auction in the emergency department. I'm Dave Pearson, uh, coming to you from Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Uh, I made a poor decision to start a barbecue restaurant with a college friend of mine since the splats of sauce. So uh, I always call it job security, except we put nitroglycerin in the rub, uh, which keeps everyone nice and safe. Rule number one is never start a restaurant. Um, so let's do a case. We got a 42-year-old female who presents to us with respiratory distress. Uh, this is not a diagnostic dilemma, fever, cough. Uh, you can see the vital signs there clearly in uh, severe sepsis, septic shock, marked, uh, marked hypoxia, uh, hence the, the title of the talk. You're able to fire off a quick chest x-ray, and this is what you see. So clearly pneumonia with a very uh, critically ill uh, patient. So some of the um, things to consider is it's not about the technical aspects of getting that core, getting the tube through the cords, but actually managing these physiologic effects of intubation so we don't hurt this patient when we're just trying to uh, secure their airway. So these are absolutely essential things, the main ones being managing the potential for hypotension uh, and hypoxia. So since this talk is about managing that uh, hypoxemia, uh, we're going to skip through the hypotension aspects, assume we've aggressively resuscitated this patient with the appropriate fluids, uh, you know, getting vasopressors started, considering push-dose pressors perhaps. Uh, but how do we optimize this patient's uh, pre-oxygenation? And so this is sort of, let, let's kind of lay some foundational work here, okay? We all know that pre-oxygenation uh, is uh, an incredible, incredibly important aspect to, to intubation for all these reasons. It's not about just pre-oxygenation. It's also about washing out that nitrogen. So we have a very prolonged safe apnea period, and we're very comfortable when we're doing the, the intubation. Uh, we know that you can take a healthy patient and you can have a relatively prolonged safe apnea period, but those are not the patients we're intubating. We're intubating the, the obese patients, the child with less reserve, or the critically ill patient with a fair amount of physiologic shunting, which is going to make that safe apnea period much, much shorter. And so everything we can do to optimize that pre-oxygenation pre state is going to be imperative. Um, so again, safe apnea def defined as the period of time for which you have an oxygen saturation above 90%. Um, and critically ill patients, for a multitude of reasons, are going to desaturate, one of which I already mentioned was this physiologic shunting where the blood is actually bypassing some working alveoli that is surrounded with alveoli that has a bunch of blood or pus or, or whatever else is causing uh, the problem with the pulmonary status. Uh, interestingly, the oxygen saturation that you are seeing on the monitor has about a 30 to 60 second lag time. Very important to know that. So when you are seeing your saturations drifting down and they are at 30% and 20% and it's just a horrific airway, just know that might be reflecting what happened 30 seconds ago. Kind of scary when you think about it. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about how we're going to improve our chances. I love this topic because it really takes away a lot of stress when you're dealing with uh, these challenging patients when you're trying to get them uh, intubated. So if you're on Twitter and blogs, you'll hear about this rule of 15s for pre-oxygenation. I added the uh, top one, which is position, because I see this one 
despite it being the, the simplest of them all, often overlooked. So I put here, um, uh, so position, head of the bed greater than 15 degrees, preferably 20 degrees or more, uh, non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute, nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute, and if you are unable to achieve uh, oxygen saturations above 93 to 95% with those simple measures, then you're going to want to use some positive uh, pressure ventilation. So there were two uh, studies done in operating room patients and uh, show that, you know, these are clearly a different patient population than we deal with, but still you get an extra 90 seconds in operating room patients simply by having their head of the bed up. And this was true for uh, obese patients, although, although the longer period of safe apnea was less recognizable with those patients. So simple maneuver, uh, I encourage you to do it. So now what about uh, face masks? So we know that we can deliver a fair amount of FiO2 at 15 liters a minute. And so some have advocated, well, if you just crank that uh, regulator to where it's just bobbing as high as it'll go, you can actually generate FiO2 a greater than 90%. Very small study where they actually put the measurement probe in someone's uh, nasopharynx to actually determine if, that, if you could achieve that high of an FiO2, and it looks like you can. I would say that most people, though, have kind of trended away from that now to say, you know what, we can be a little um, more delicate with it because it does create a lot of noise, a lot of chaos. Sometimes the oxygen uh, uh, tubing will actually pop off the, uh, the regulator valve. And so I, I would say that most are saying, you know what, we can just stick with 15 liters a minute non-rebreather as long as you're also doing 15 liters a minute via nasal, nasal cannula. So this is kind of how it should, uh, how your uh, oxygen regulators should look, and I would encourage you to use both the non-rebreather and nasal cannula at 15 liters for these patients. Um, and then once you achieve that normal oxygen saturation of greater than 95%, the next phase is truly the uh, denitrogenation phase, right? You want to wash out that nitrogen, create a huge oxygen reservoir, so then you can have a nice, comfortable intubation uh, experience. Obviously, if they're not spontaneously breathing, give them eight uh, vital capacity breaths, and that should get you where you want to be. So this is a, uh, one of uh, former residents graduated last year. The rule of 15 is in action. So uh, what are some of the conventional O2 drawbacks, uh, particularly with nasal uh, cannula? So some said, well, can you really tolerate 15 liters through your nose because it's a dry, cold oxygen coming out? You know, is it going to just be too uncomfortable uh, to tolerate? And the other thing is you can't really control it. It's inaccurate. Sure, you can crank that 15 liters all the way up to, um, you know, as high as it'll go, which will usually get you about 60 liters a minute. Uh, but the question becomes is, is there, is, there another, is there another way? So first, answering the question, is it tolerable? This was a study that just came out this year where you uh, took 77 uh, healthy volunteers and said, you know, let's do a randomized crossover study. For 10 minutes, we're going to put you on the, the 15 liters a minute. Then we're going to switch you over to the other group, uh, which is 6 liters per minute. And is it, can you tolerate the full 10 minutes at that 15 liters per minute uh, setting? And the answer is yes. No one, no one's head blew off. Uh, nothing wild happened. So it is, uh, it is safe. Uh, it's tolerable. Um, and uh, although it was uh, slightly more uncomfortable. So then the follow-up question is, well, what about this heated, humidified, high-flow nasal cannula with these special devices that we have uh, that will deliver the air in a more controlled fashion so you can titrate the FiO2 as well as you can control some of these other uh, parameters? Uh, 
So there's two uh, you know, big devices uh, out there. One's OptiFlow, one's Vapotherm. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough to actually use both of them just because at our hospital, uh, we switched over from one device uh, over to the other device, uh, mainly because the respiratory therapist felt that the OptiFlow was a little easier to uh, set up. So that's what they ultimately went to. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, from the end user standpoint, I'll say I didn't, I didn't notice any difference. You just turn the knob, you got high flow oxygen going, uh, and it was, it's, you know, with the respiratory therapist setting it up uh, and learning how to set them both up, they're, all, they're both fairly simple to set up. Uh, but there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, there's just not enough time to, like, go through every individual part. Plus, I think you guys would all walk out if I went through all the details. But for the most part, it's you plug it in, okay? you got to have a bag of fluid, Okay, uh, you gotta have a bag of fluid uh, that runs through to provide that humidification portion. Uh, and the nasal cannula is, uh, it's, you know, just bigger bore uh, nasal cannula. And so this is the OptiFlow setup, very similar. Uh, and then you can see, you can see, you can just turn this, uh, looking over here on the right screen, you can just turn that to FiO2 of 100% if that's what uh, you so choose. Um, this, these things come with a lot of accessories. So if you, if you look over here, this is so you can titrate it down to a quarter or a half liter per minute for your uh, neonates. Here's one with Heliox. This one is with bubble peep, so you can actually adjust it. Uh, so you can generate, you know, the normal one generates about 2.7 centimeters of water peep. Uh, with that, you can generate closer to five centimeters of water. So there are some uh, accessories just to be uh, aware of. And Depending on what you're using it for, uh, if you're doing it for pre-oxygenation, which is, is kind of what this talk is, is getting at, uh, and this is what the studies use, they pretty much set it at 100% FiO2. I mean, that's what you're going you're gonna to want to get them optimally pre-oxygenated if you're going to have a difficult uh, airway. But you can titrate it uh, once you're there uh, fairly easily to achieve the oxygen uh, status that you want. And uh, essentially, you're washing out the anatomic uh, dead space. You're creating a small amount of PEEP, which is very important to know the limitations that that generates. Uh, you have the benefit of humidification. And um, I put up here the, the 55 decibels uh, of noise. Uh, these things are not, uh, not very loud. Uh, I put one on myself and titrated it up to 100%. My, uh, my, my head uh, is still intact. Well, somewhat. Uh, that's disputable. But... Um, but it's, it's, it really is, uh, it is, it is really tolerable. I mean, even at the high flow, you definitely sense it. You definitely notice a higher flow. But the idea that you can't uh, use this for, um, you know, for a prolonged period of the time uh, is just not true. You can keep these, these machines on for days uh, on patients if need be. So patient selection. So obviously it's delivering high flow oxygen. It is meant for the hypoxemic respiratory failure patient. But there are definitely smaller studies out there for patients that also have hypercapnic respiratory failure, as well as a slew of other things. Uh, I think this is a, for, for a patient who is uh, DNI, who you would otherwise intubate, this is a great device to, to put on that patient. Uh, those patients that Truly, you know, you, you just don't want to innovate. For instance, an asthma patient, you don't want to innovate that patient, but you want to be able to deliver them something else. They're not tolerating BiPAP, uh, and this is a great device to consider in these patients because, one, it's much more tolerated um, than, than BiPAP is uh, most of the time. You can see procedures, and we're going to go into sort of, uh, you know, peri-intubation, pre-intubation, and apneic oxygenation here uh, in just a moment. 
So this was, uh, this, was a, this was a study that just came out this year, great study, 23 ICUs, okay, uh, multi-centered, you know, RCT, all that good stuff, 310 patients that their goal was to prevent intubation. They basically said, can this high-flow nasal cannula, specifically this heated, humidified, high-flow nasal cannula, can it prevent an intubation? And they showed that it was no difference between, you know, positive pressure ventilation, i.e. BiPAP, versus standard oxygen delivery via face max versus the high-flow nasal cannula, no difference in intubation rates. They did notice a 90-day improved mortality with uh, high-flow nasal cannula. Um, but again, if, if you're, I would say what to get from this study is if you think the patient needs to be intubated, go ahead and intubate them. This is, this is not going to be a tool that you can use to help prevent the intubation. So I, I said this before, you see the dog up there, right? That's kind of what BiPAP feels like. I mean, have you ever put on BiPAP that? Uh, I've, I've done it. I mean, it's kind of weird that I'm trying all this stuff, but that's how, you, you know, they, they make the respiratory therapists do it all the time. They put on all these devices. But if you put on BiPAP, it really is. It feels like you're sticking your head out of a truck going 60 miles an hour, and it just feels crazy. So I, I would say um, if, if, if somebody is not tolerating BiPAP or you just don't need the PEEP generated from the BiPAP, the high-flow nasal cannula certainly gives you uh, a different option. So we've talked about trying to prevent intubation. What about can this be used for pre-oxygenation? Is it going to be better for pre-oxygenation? So here are, um, there's two studies. This is the first one, which is a before-after study. And what this study uh, looked at, 101 ICU patients, and they just looked at, they looked at the parameter as shown there, the lowest O2 sat, uh, and specifically, you know, severe hypoxia that they defined as less than, less than 80%. And they showed uh, improved pre-oxygenation and reduced severe hypoxia when you compare this high-flow nasal cannula versus the non-rebreather. Um, the a second study that also came out this year actually looked at, uh, and this was a really well-done study, RCT, um, so better design, 119 ICU patients. And you can, um, and you can see here that they showed uh, uh, no difference. So no difference in the lowest oxygen saturation uh, uh, during the endotracheal innovation. And they did this, um, and, they, and these studies also did, so this one was with OptiFlow, but they also did the apneic oxygenation, which I'll talk about uh, in just a moment. But they also, they used the OptiFlow for pre-oxygenation. They also kept it in place during, uh, you know, after you give the induction agent, they kept it in place for the apneic oxygenation uh, period as well. And they compared that to the, to the 15 liters a minute of a non-rebreather and really showed, uh, showed no difference. So, uh, so, you know, in terms of pre-oxygenation, I think you are fine just sticking with your conventional wall unit oxygen delivered at 15 liters a minute. I don't think there's any added benefit unless you're trying to avoid intubation altogether to use the high-flow uh, nasal cannula. So let's talk uh, a moment about uh, apneic oxygenation. Okay, this is after you give your induction agent. You're sitting there, and the patient is apneic, and, uh, and we know that uh, when, you, when you just give, the, the easiest way to do it is just you have the nasal cannula going at 15 liters per minute. And in the operating room studies, that really does prolong your safe apnea period uh, quite a bit. This study here just came out uh, out of the Vanderbilt ICU. Matt uh, Semler is an ICU fellow there. Uh, this was published October 1st, and they said, okay, all this, uh, all this uh, apneic oxygenation stuff that the ED physicians are doing, let's see if it really really has any benefit. So they looked at, in their ICU, patients either received aptic oxygenation at 15 liters a minute during the intubation or uh, usual care, which was uh, just, you know, typically, 
you're, you keep them on the, um, well, you can see what typical care kind of broke down to be. A lot of these patients, they're ICU patients, they're very critically ill. A lot of them are bagged. Uh, a lot of them are BiPAP. And so from the, and this is some of the criticism on this study, is one, it was not a controlled study. It was a pragmatic study. So when you gave the induction agent until you actually removed whatever oxygen source you were delivering, whether that's bag valve mask uh, or BiPAP, you know, it was, it was not controlled in that fashion. Needless to say, the study showed that there was no difference uh, in terms of the lowest uh, oxygenation uh, result in these patients. So a uh, couple, couple, um, couple thoughts about this. Number one, uh, I would still recommend you continue to do apneic oxygenation at the 15 liters per minute. And my logic behind that is, one, these patients are ICU patients, which is different than the ED population. Uh, the operating room studies, also a different patient population, does show some more benefit. But a lot of these patients were not truly apneic. And, and a lot of these patients were pneumonia. They were sepsis also. So, um, you know, you got to take that uh, for what it's worth, a, a sort of a different patient population. So a brain-injured patient, stroke patients, uh, trauma patients, uh, where the lungs are more likely to be good, uh, apneic oxygenation is probably going to have more benefit than in the patient who has pneumonia and sepsis and more severe ongoing critical, uh, critical illness. So uh, again, uh, briefly, uh, CPAP or BiPAP uh, or bag valve mask with PEEP uh, is, you know, and you have to always be cautious with PEEP. If you've got a hypotensive patient, be very cautious with PEEP because it's going to potentially drop their pressure some more. Uh, but if you are not achieving your oxygen saturations uh, that are desired, appropriately pre-oxygenating the patient, go ahead and uh, uh, use positive pressure oxygenation. Um, so here are positive pressure ventilations. So here's the rule of 15s. Um, uh, I just put this up because this is a patient I saw who came in with after this laryngeal surgery with some weird stoma, and he literally, and this is what the information for me said. He says, do not go to the emergency room. They won't know what to do. And, uh, and so I read the instructions, and I tried to figure it out, and you know what? That damn thing was right. I didn't know what to do. So I called the ENT, and he fixed it, but I thought that was hilarious. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's talk about innovation uh, options here because uh, I think uh, now's a good time to talk about uh, delayed sequence innovation, especially since there's a, a new study that has come out. So, so delayed sequence innovation. So what is it? It's, uh, it's a technique by which you are doing procedural sedation simply to provide pre-oxygenation. Um, and so essentially, you are giving an induction agent. Okay, so if the patient is agitated, they won't accept any, uh, you don't even have IV access, you can give them a dissociative agent, then give them the pre-oxygenation strategy that you need to, so just face masks, nasal cannula, then wait three minutes to get them appropriately pre-oxygenated and denitrogenated, and then you can proceed with giving the paralytic and intubating them just like you would uh, any other way. So uh, who are the candidates? So these are the two, right? Good lungs or bad brains or bad lungs and good brains. And for a long time, uh, I've used this technique numerous times, and it, it really does take a very uncontrolled environment. I had a guy with COPD on all fours, on the bed, no IV access. He already ripped it out. I mean, just try to get this, try to get this situation under control. You give IM ketamine, you get them pre-oxygenated, you give the paralytic three minutes later, 
every, it's just such a calm, pleasant environment, and that's how I, I prefer to operate. So then the criticism has been, well, there's no studies out there. There's no literature to support this technique. Well, there is finally an observational study uh, looking at DSI, and you can see, so mean oxygen saturation increased by about 9%. There was no adverse events or complications related to doing DSI. Uh, and four of them were facilitated for placement of an NG tube in GI bleed patients, which is an interesting way to do it. So if you have a, you know, if you have a massive uh, GI bleed, you can then give this there, you know, you give ketamine essentially, you put down an NG tube, you empty out their stomach, and then you can get them appropriately pre-oxygenated if they're just not um, tolerating uh, the therapies. So back to the uh, back to the case. Uh, so we have a 42-year-old uh, female with pneumonia. Um, uh, we did the rule of 15s, which I would uh, I think it's an easy way to remember these things. Uh, we ended up doing successful uh, RSI. So my final thoughts are just be meticulous with your pre-oxygenation. Um, this is really, you know, part, I, I love giving these talks because I learn so much and I learn the strategies. And being able to, to deliver all these therapies, it really prolongs your safe apnea period, makes your life so much uh, easier when you're uh, handling some of these sick patients. Consider high-flow nasal cannula in the right, uh, in the right patient. Um, I have uh, used it several times, but I found... I found that oftentimes there's less opportunity to use this than not. Uh, I would continue to use apneic oxygenation, uh, knowing that there might be some limitations in the critically ill patient, especially with a lot of physiologic shunting, uh, and then uh, certainly consider DSI in the uh, agitated hypoxic, uh, hypoxic patient. So thank you. I, uh, please email me if you have any, uh, if you have any questions. I've got to run off to another uh, lecture, but I'll be just outside the room for a couple of minutes. Thank you.